This is another edition of Just Conversations with Dean Kelly Brown Douglas. Our guest today is the Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson. He's the president and CEO of the Children's Defense Fund. Dr. Wilson is a pastor, philanthropist, and activist pursuing God's vision of community marked by justice, peace, and love. He is board chair for the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy and a vice chair of the Forum for Theological Exploration. Previously, Dr. Wilson served as the president and CEO of Deaconess Foundation, a faith-based grant-making organization supporting a movement for child well-being in St. Louis through philanthropy, advocacy, and organizing for racial equity and public policy change. He also pastored St. John's Church, the beloved community, an interracial inner-city congregation related to the United Church of Christ. Good afternoon. I am Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Thank you all for joining us in another of our series of Just Conversations, where we engage issues of racialized inequities intrinsic to our nation and our collective responsibility to create a more just future. This afternoon, I can't tell you how excited and pleased I am to have with me in conversation the Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson, who is the new president and CEO of the Children's Defense Fund. Dr. Wilson is a pastor, philanthropist, and activist pursuing God's vision of community marked by justice, peace, and love. There's so many things that I could say about the Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson that would take me all afternoon and I wanna jump into conversation, but I do wanna say that we will all remember his uh, moral leadership and moral voice after the police killing of Michael Brown Jr. Uh, in uh, Ferguson. And so his church hosted the Black Lives Matter Freedom Rides to Ferguson, and he served as the welcome center for the Ferguson October. And so I want to thank you for all of the work that you have done, your ministry, your witness to racial and social justice. And I want to welcome you, Dr. Wilson, to this conversation. Thank you, Dean. I'm so glad to be with you again and be in conversation. And I look forward uh, to this time and, uh, and even more time together uh, to connect and, and do the work that God has called us to. Great. Well, let's jump right in. Yeah. As I just mentioned, you had a very active ministry. You were the pastor of a very vibrant and active church. You were always a social justice activist, and that uh, was a part of your ministry. And you and I first met in doing uh, some of this work and, at Haley Farm, and now you are the CEO of the Children's Defense Fund. Tell me about that transition and how you see that or not as a part of your ongoing ministry. Yeah, the the uh, the journey of um, the ever evolving journey of vocation uh, and uh, this question uh, with God uh, really comes forth uh, for me. It seems out of my own experiences. Um, so grew up uh, in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I really had a sense of call pretty early on in my college career. Uh, I thought I was headed to law school. Um, um, God said, "No, you're actually going to be a preacher." I saw models where, quite frankly, the church was not helpful, maybe and sometimes harmful to families of ministers 
uh, with, uh, with preachers in my own family, pastors in my own family. And so I was kind of negotiating back and forth. And what that negotiation in college led to was a political science major, a theology minor, and work in the nonprofit sector as my as my negotiation with God. Uh, and uh, God has a funny way of saying, okay, you want to go do this nonprofit stuff? That's fine. But rather than choosing one to escape the other, I ended up bivocational. So much of my journey has been that while I was working in the nonprofit sector uh, full-time, uh, prior to pastoring full-time, I was a youth pastor. Uh, and once I came full time to work for the Urban League and the United Way and ultimately Deaconess, Deaconess Foundation, I was also full time at the church. Um, so uh, so this is so be careful, uh, young uh, <laughs> ministers trying to negotiate with God, uh, because what it really meant was that I always had these two things walking together. I was serving in some setting of health and human service or social justice ministry while also pastoring. And so living at the intersection always with the opportunity to bring those things together. And so the, the shifts or the moves from pastoral ministry at St. John's Church in St. Louis to service, um, leading a philanthropy focused on child well-being and racial equity at much of the same time uh, really evolved into and, and, and invited me to respond to the moment uh, of crisis and uprising in Ferguson that put me on a path of conversation, quite frankly. Um, on that journey is where I met Mrs. Edelman, where I met Dr. Vivian, and this is what really kind of propelled partnership that brought me to this space. Yeah, listening uh, to you, first of all, it's interesting. We uh, have one common beginning because I thought I was going to be a lawyer too. Uh, ah. uh, and, and you're right. Be careful of negotiating with God, right? Because you never win that negotiation. But no. the... <laughs> but the interesting thing, I think, in what you've said of many interesting things is that something we like to talk about here, that one, whether or not you were calling what you were doing ministry, it was ministry, and uh, that social justice is yeah. the gospel, right? It's not the, the add-on, it is the gospel, and your own path, uh, in your own journey, is emblematic of that. Yeah. Let's talk about children, <laughs> uh, yeah. as you are now at uh, the Children's Defense Fund. And let's talk about that now in this context of COVID. Prior yeah. to COVID-19, we had far too many children living in poverty. Yes. And of course, COVID has laid bare the inequities that we have always known, and it's laid bare for those who have been privileged enough uh, and have not suffered from them before. So while the gap, for instance, is decreasing in terms of the poverty gap, there still remains to be a three times more likelihood for children of color to be in poverty than black children. And so in my estimation, poverty remains one of the most significant comorbidities when it comes not simply to COVID, but when it comes to one's life possibilities and life options. Yeah. So yeah. Go ahead. One of the one of the things that it lay, that it that uh, we find with children that are particularly children of color uh, that are trapped in this cycle of poverty is first an achievement gap, this yeah. educational gap that is only widened during COVID. We haven't addressed yeah. it before. It's widened. How do we address it in real ways? 
And do you really think we can close this gap? Because estimates are we might not be able to close it for 125 years. Yeah, I think there, there are a couple of things. Like every preacher, uh, everyone who stands in front of a congregation, uh, everyone who understands themselves to be called uh, to serve the last, the least, and the left out in an American context where children have no voice, no vote, no lobbyists, right. should, should know a few things about those who are voiceless, right? Um, number one, they should know that 10 million children lived in poverty in America before the COVID pandemic. Right. And they should know that in the context of COVID over the last near year, we estimate that 2.5 million more have found themselves in poverty. Number, number two, they should know that 71% of all children in poverty are children of color. That's right. Right. Number three, they should know that other, as of 2020, the majority of all of America's children are children of color. So to speak of child well-being is to speak of racial justice and racial, and racial equity. To speak of racial equity for the long term is to speak of children and their well-being. And so we've got to be We've got to be holding these things in tension in ways that perhaps we have not before. Uh, so those are things I think folks ought to know. The, the other thing I think um, folks ought to know is we know what works to advance child well-being. And, 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 and the thing that works to advance child well-being is resources. When I say resources, I'm be very crass. Money matters. Right, right, right. that's right. Uh, so when we talk about the thriving and flourishing of young people, which includes their achievement in school, uh, which includes their uh, health status long term, which includes their nutritional uh, status, which includes whether they're unhoused. It has everything to do with the financial capabilities of the home. And, and this has everything to do with the eschatological hope that we have lifted up called the American dream. Right. Right. Which has at its central at, at its central value has this idea of intergenerational mobility that right. I can do better than mama did. Mama can do better than, than daddy did, all, all those kinds of things, right? And so that breaks down when you have, for the first time, as we have had with, with, with millennials, the first time when you have a more educated generation that will not financially do better than their parents. That's right, that's right. So the idea has broken down. Now, now what COVID has done absolutely exacerbated this, but also we should know a few things about children. Number one, children are not immune. <laughs> and when I say Thank that, you. I mean... I mean, I say that as it relates to the, the actual pandemic, the, the health right. matter, but also all of the rate related economic matters. That's right. These things that have drawn the economy down, these things that have drawn health status down, these things that are making us a little more stressed and making us wonder what's going on with us when we haven't been outside in a few days and we don't feel quite right. It is exacerbated in children who are experiencing uh, challenges of disconnection of lack of education. And for the record, I'll just say, uh, even in virtual schooling, and I have four children in virtual school right now, from five to 15. And I'll, you know, dirty little secret, all the teachers ain't showing up either. I love teachers. <laughs> right, right. But I got, you know, I got a young man, 12 years old, who has had no shows from teachers or teachers who have not been feeling well in virtual school four times right. in the last five days. So let's, let's be honest That's about right. what's happening. Can we make up the gap? Yes, we can make up the gap. A couple of things that we can do that we must redouble our efforts in to make up the gap right now. Go to policy for a quick second. Because money matters, the American Rescue Act um, that includes an expansion of the child tax credit That's right. that, by the way, will take 52 percent half of all black children out of poverty. 
has to be passed right now. So, so church folk who care about children should be contacting legislators to invest more resources in children through expansion of the child tax credit right now in the American Rescue Act. Money matters. And guess what? In crisis, we figure out stuff that mattered and it worked before. We just hadn't tried it before. So since, so since we hadn't tried this child tax credit before, but we know it works to put more money with parents, then we should actually make it permanent. So I was glad uh, earlier this week um, to be in on a call uh, with three Congress people who introduced the American Family Act, reintroduced the American Family Act in Congress with 148 um, um, uh, uh, co-signers on the bill, co-sponsors to the bill to make that expansion of the child tax credit permanent. Um, why? This, this is something we all developed English speaking nations have some form of a child allowance. That's right. If we expand that, then we're advancing the well-being of children and we need to do that work. This is something that congregation can engage in. So money matters. The other thing I'll say that matters is culturally responsive pedagogy to help catch up with the virtual COVID gap. When we start talking about education, we're gonna to have to redouble investment in supports to close the opportunity gap. And I, th this one adjustment I'll say, um, black and brown children achieve on par with their white counterparts in settings where there's not enough of them to keep resources from them. Their, their achievement is consistent when the investment is consistent. But once you get above a percentage of black and brown children right. such that you can keep resources out of their classroom or keep it out of their neighborhood or keep it out of their district, now we begin to see a gap. So that's much more about the opportunities that they're given than it is about their capacity for achievement. That being said, coming out of COVID, we're gonna have to ramp up things like culturally responsive pedagogy, models like freedom schools, so shameless plug for Children's Defense Fund freedom schools, where I have seen, right, before I came here, we invested uh, in our church-based philanthropy in a network of freedom schools. And we saw in the, 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 the freedom school and our four-site network, all based in churches, um, over the summer, in an eight-week period, we saw an increase of more than six months of reading when we put in front of Black children books with people who look like them. Black younger, you know, who look like the children, young people who are in college who show them something they can aspire to, and we make it fun and responsive to who they are uh, and their agency in the world. And so we're going to need expansion of programs like that. We can't come back and do didactic, uh, deductive kind of learning, this kind of banking of knowledge. We got to come back in and meet these young people where they are with something that they will lean into. Uh, and that requires us to rethink and recalibrate our educational models. My goodness, <laughs> Reverend Wilson, <laughs> you have said a lot and I want to, and I hope everybody heard that. And I want to break down a little bit in the role of the church and I want to yeah. get there, but I want to highlight a couple of things you said right at the very beginning. And that is this, that the majority of children in this country right now are children of color. And so that if we can get people to understand that when we're talking about racial justice, we are actually talking about this vision that our nation has of itself to be this nation where there's 
freedom and justice and equality for we're talking about the well-being of the nation we're talking about uh, uh the nation growing into being the democracy that it says it is so that racial justice and who we are as a nation are linked and if we could get people to understand that it is about our moral responsibilities and it's you know because when we say racial people are oh no goodness me uh black <laughs> lives matter so i want to, i want to highlight that and yeah. also what you 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 said that when and this is this separate but equal thing doesn't doesn't work in this nation in which there is no racial justice in which we still have this narrative this strong anti-black and uh sort of white racist narrative that when they're not enough i hope people heard that it is when they're not enough children of color in a school to matter uh, so that they withdraw uh, uh, support that those children achieve. And so what we're calling the achievement gap is not about children's ability to achieve, it's about the lack of opportunity to achieve. And so I, if, if people can hear that, let me ask one thing and then I wanna go to the role of the churches. You also spoke about the way you know, this generational, uh, that we want one generation to have more opportunities and be uh, better off than the next generation. But we aren't seeing that. And so how do we begin to, because the lack of opportunity to make a wide range of choices, right? And yeah. so th that the choices, the limited choices of one generation, even if that generation made the best choices available to them, uh, uh, but their limited choices are passed down to the next generation. So it limits the choices that they have and it continues. What, how do we begin? not only to increase opportunities of uh, choices, choices, but to make up the gap for the generational gap so that we might have more choices, but they're still limited compared to our uh, white counterparts because they generationally have had more choices and more opportunities. Yeah, I really appreciate this question. And I think it has everything to do with what you highlighted, this shift uh, between uh, the achievement framework and the opportunity framework, because I think we have to see winning uh, uh, for our children and with our children uh, as a matter of contesting in the environment as much as we have seen it um, as inter, uh, kind of intervening uh, for the child. Uh, what, what do I mean? By that, I mean, um, if we learn nothing else, on January 6th in the context of the Capitol siege. We learned and we saw metaphorically that the project of American democracy and the, the, the advancement of legislation and policy is more a contest for power than it is a dialogue about policy, right? What we saw is people working or responding to a lack of power at the Citadel of dialogue about mm -hmm. policy, right? And so I say that to say, yes, we need to continue to raise our, our black and brown children to achieve. And yes, we need to shape them uh, for the best opportunities, but we must uh, uh, respond to the reality that child well-being is context specific uh, and that there are things around them, social determinants of health, 
um, neighborhood degradation, uh, lack of investment that comes from state budgets. There are things that are around them that will impact their ability to achieve as much as them working hard or them putting their nose to the grindstone. These ideas, these concepts will actually not allow them to advance out of poverty, will not allow them to advance beyond their counterparts in the same way that in many ways it did for us. So we've got to contest in the environment. uh, And that means investment in institutions and networks to build power in our communities. I hate to be, be crass, but we are not going to educate our children. We better keep educating our children. We will not educate our children out of this. We are not going to etiquette our children out of this. They better know how to, how to act when they get to the table, but we're not going to etiquette our children out of this. We must build the power in a context through a network of grassroots organizing, a mobilization, and in many ways, clear politicization of our faith spaces in ways that is aligned with the faith that we proclaim. Uh, and then we must act so that we're shifting the environment around them transforming neighborhoods and transforming the political debate by putting people on purpose in the public square. This, this is our work. No, I, I so appreciate hearing you say that. And I highlight again what you've said so people to hear, contest the environments that are indeed, as I like to uh, say, these are cultures of death. They are, they are not trying to nurture life. They are doing what they are intended to do, nurture death. And so our children are trapped in these violent cycles that that are indeed, I call them crucifying realities, crucifying realities, right? And it's not their fault. And we so oftentimes blame our children, you know, as we talk about achievement and as if something's wrong with them, or as you say, etiquette, or, you know, oh, well, Black communities have to uh, emphasize education. Well, my goodness, we do. (laughs) We've died. Don't we, right? So what we have here is what I like to call a not school to prison pipeline, but a poverty to prison pipeline. Yeah. And that we, as you say, need to begin to invest in a different way in our communities so that we make them communities that indeed foster life uh, as opposed to fostering death and that lead to further opportunities and not to prisons. This, it seems to me, and you've said this over and over again, there is a special role, it seems to me, for churches. And a special, because this is a moral issue, if nothing else. Uh, uh, So I want to ask you, and you've talked about it over and over in some of the responses that you've made. What is the role of faith communities? And I've got to ask you, we know that faith communities haven't done all they're just supposed to do, that the church hasn't. What are your disappointments? <laughs> what, uh, in terms of the way in which the church has not responded? Uh, uh, and uh, how would you like to see it respond? Yeah, no, I appreciate this. I, I really, I, I, you know, I've been, I was a pastor for 10 years. Uh, I was a youth pastor for seven years before that. So I don't, uh, I don't come to the church with a critique um, that is not one that is not loving, uh, I, I decide to love the church into what I believe it should be. Uh, and so a, a couple of things I'll say, the church needs to do what it does and, and, and do it stronger and deeper. Um, there is theological work 
to be done as it relates to child well-being and the liberation of our children mm. that I, I invite right, I invite the best theological minds to engage deeply in what it means uh, to root particularly a Christian theology uh, in the hope of Christ who said, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not for of such is the kingdom of heaven. But even going further, right? That if you do not enter in as a child, then you shall not enter. This idea that the, that the kingdom, that the Basileia of God, that all that Jesus preached is predicated on the posture of the child and the boundaries there, there around, that, that are set around it have to do with entering behind that, that image, that metaphor, if not the actual very child, right? So what, what, would it, what does it mean for us to wrestle with the fact that the project of Jesus is predicated on the child? And so how do we build a theological framework around that so we can preach that like we mean it, right? Can I preach right. it like that's I feel right. it? That's right. 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 <laughs> so what does it mean to build that project? What does it mean to build, to help us shift, right? Help us in the life of kind of social work and, and this kind of nonprofit landscape to shift from a child saving framework, right? Most of our public policy is child welfare, child protection. It's about keeping bad stuff from happening to children, uh, but rather join- but Keeping a bad system in place. Keep it, it keeps a bad system in place or implements a system that is gonna further kind of uh, uh, create disparities to try to save kids rather than um, suggesting that they're flourishing, they're thriving in their well-being is a vision that we ought to work toward, right? And so the church that is trying to mobilize people around getting somewhere, going somewhere, a hope-filled vision, then I, then I invite people to engage in the theological work of reflection and, and study and, and interrogation, interdisciplinary interrogation uh, around child flourishing, because if the kingdom is based upon the child, then the flourishing of the child has to be a part of our theological aim and work. Um, so, so that's the theological work. But then there's also, right, the, the, I, I, the, there's the practical work in the life of the church, right? I, I said, you know, the reality is if the church is not, and I'm just I'll talk to black people for a quick second. If the church, if the black church is not a politicized space, then we don't have one. <laughs> That's right. Right. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a member of the Divine Nine. It is not a politicized space. Uh, I'm a member of other fraternities. You know, as uh, Sam Proctor would say, you know, I know more handshakes to, to, think, exactly. you, to think I got the palsy. Right. Um, right. <laughs> but, but these are not politicized spaces. We've not That's politicized right. the Divine Nine. We've not politicized the Boulay. We've not politicized That's Jack right. and Jill. We've not politicized. Well, the you name it all my groups. <laughs> right. And so if we if we're not going to politicize those spaces, we better politicize the church. And the church is a better space. That's right. To be a political home. Uh, for Black people because it is the most socioeconomically That's diverse right. space. And so one of my disappointments is that we have begun to further segregate ourselves to look more like our non-politicized spaces uh, rather than rooting in the socioeconomic gifts and diversity of what the Black church has been uh, and then, uh, then setting a political, um, a political approach uh, to mobilize us around it. And the last thing I'll say pr practically about that is I believe very tactically every church, while church should be politicized homes that are connected with our theologies, it is also the case that every church needs a political home. What, what do I mean by that? 
Um, the denomination is not a political home in most mm-hmm. cases. Um, the church should be connected with some organizing network, uh, whether, whether for you that's IAF or Gamaliel or Faith in Action or any other, or deeply engaging with the NAACP's religious uh, uh, organizing committee uh, or doing uh, faith-related uh, child advocacy ministry with the Children's Defense Fund. Every church needs, uh, connected with this mission, a way to do justice in the world and connection to a wider network that gives it a political home to live out uh, its mission for transformation in the world. Um, that is absolutely about, um, you know, the, the people who are daily being saved. Uh, I so appreciate much of all of what you've said and this last point that it is so important for churches. We partner with other churches and other faith, but to partner with people who are doing the social political work in the world, that we have to make partnership with people who are out there doing this work. I so appreciate that. And I think that the same for seminaries, right? That if we're going to train our ministers, people who will be doing ministry and going into uh, faith institutions to really be not simply those in the pulpit preaching or whatever they do, but to be transformers of society, then they have to also be trained in that regard and seminaries have to partner with agencies and groups like yours so that they know what that means and what that kind of transformational uh, ministry and transformational activity looks like. Yeah, absolutely. You were so right that it begins with the children. As I take that uh, biblical uh, saying is, helping us to understand that justice must begin with the most vulnerable in our society. And it is when those who have been on the deep underside of injustice and who have had no voice, when they are able to flourish and say, ah, there's justice, then we know we're on the ark. Yeah. that bends toward justice. So it has to begin with the most vulnerable. Those are our children, and those are our children of color. So I, we are at our time, so I want to leave you with this question, because I want to be honor the time, because I'm going to have you back. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> but yes. I want to leave you with this question. So if you closed your eyes and you imagined a society where all children could flourish, what would that society look like? Yeah, uh, I'll start with the black and white picture behind me. Um, uh, in this picture, which was a gift uh, for some of the activists in the movement for Black Lives when I was transitioning from St. Louis to, uh, to DC in the midst of um, the uprisings and, and COVID uh, just last fall, um, they gave me this blown up image that now is the backdrop in my home studio. Everybody's got a home studio now. <laughs> Uh, of this four-year-old in front of the picture of George Floyd in the memorial um, there in Minneapolis uh, with a mask on that says, get your knee off our neck with her fist in the air. Now, for me, um, the picture is, goes from black and white to color. And that four-year-old girl should be singing and dancing. Mm. 
so the, the image of a flourishing child is the image of a flourishing community. The image of a well child is the image of a peace-filled community. And happy children, healthy children, uh, safe children sing and dance. So the picture of a flourishing community for me is one where children are out in the middle of the street and in the neighborhood singing and dancing. Singing and dancing. What an image to leave with. Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson, thank you for this inspiring conversation. And thank you for your witness and your work that takes us, truly takes us toward a more just future where I hope children will one day be singing and dancing. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Blessings, Dean. Thank you.